You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Did you see Mr. Steele last night? Yes, as I came home, I saw him going to his apartment with a girl. That girl was murdered between 1 and 2 o'clock this morning. imagination to visualize the crime you're driving up the canyon you put your right arm around her neck you get to a lonely place in the road and you begin to squeeze you're an ex-gi you know judo you know how to kill a person go ahead go ahead brother squeeze harder Dix didn't do it. You saw him after the girl left. But Lochner has a different idea. He believes Dix could have done it. I left his office feeling as though he were trying to warn me. I came here because I wanted to say these things out loud and be laughed at. But you're not laughing. Let me in. So are you taking to Las Vegas? No, I know. Are you packing to go on a honeymoon? Yes, of course. You're packing to run away from me like you ran away from Mr. Baker. Dick. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. I'm so ronery. Yeah, a little ronery. Also with us this week is the head of Motion Picture Collection Information and Access at the George Eastman House, Mr. Jared Case. So happy to be on the show, guys. This week we're discussing the 1950 film from director Nicholas Ray, In a Lonely Place. The film stars Humphrey Bogart as screenwriter Dixon Steele. He's a Hollywood outsider who's accused of murdering a hat-check girl, Mildred Atkinson, who told him the story of a novel he's been assigned to adapt. The only witness to the girl being at his apartment is his neighbor across the way, Laurel Gray, played by Gloria Graham. The film is something of a mix of a movie about movie making, a love story, a murder mystery, and more. Jared, as our guest, when was the first time you saw In a Lonely Place, and what did you think? I guess the first time I saw it was about a decade ago on DVD. When I was really getting into film noir as something I wanted to focus on. But I really came at it as a Humphrey Bogart movie, more than a film noir. So it was really interesting taking the films from the 40s that he had done, the more heroic uh, Casablanca, Maltese Falcon uh, kind of things, and, and seeing him put in a position where he's playing with that same charm, but it's, it's in a much darker way. So I guess... 
that the fact that I came at it from uh, Humphrey Bogart as opposed to from film noir or from Nicholas Ray gave me a little bit of a, a different aspect than, look, than the way that we're going to be looking at it tonight. The first time I saw it was when you sent it to me to take a look at it and told me to watch for the show, and I've watched it, uh, I think, three times now. And <laughs> it, um, it's, it's an interesting film. I agree with you that, uh, Jared, it doesn't seem to be a traditional film noir when we think about film noir. I actually see it as a doomed romance and think that if there are ladies out there who like uh, romance novels, this might be a good film. And I don't mean that in a bad way, in a pejorative sense of romance novel. I think it really is a a, a, a tragic and uh, doomed romance in many ways. I saw this one, gosh, probably... 93, 94, and I don't know if I was going through more of a Humphrey Bogart phase or more of a film noir phase. And I had seen Humphrey Bogart kind of be unhinged in things before. One of the films that I grew up really loving was The Kane Mutiny, and he's completely off the rails in that one. And I had seen uh, just a few of his noir films uh, at college. I got to see The Maltese Falcon. Just completely blew me away. We watched The Big Sleep for a class, and I was just hungry for more of these kind of films. And I was uh, taken aback by In a Lonely Place just because it does seem to have so many different pieces and parts to it because it is kind of presented as a film noir and there is that romance angle to it and but yet I can never really kind of get a bead on this film which I kind of like I like that it's not this easy to place kind of a movie so it always is a little bit of a, a challenge when I watch this and a challenge in a good way in that I never necessarily know which way it's going to go. And every time you think you have the movie figured out, it moves in a different way, which I really kind of appreciate. Well, I think that's true. A lot of the way that it, the film is read is based on the person reading it. So if you're looking at it in the filmography of Humphrey Bogart, it, it's a, a sort of a step in a different direction. But if you're looking at it in a film noir, it's a film that fits into some of the themes. Certainly the darkness is there, the darkness of spirit. But it's not... Strictly film noir, you're not going to find any of these canted angles or the uh, not many of the lights coming through the panes in the windows. But there is this darkness of spirit, this touch of the the, the darkness, the, the duality in man that you're going to f- uh, find in fil- a lot of the film noir. So, if someone is taking on the appearance of being a villain or a bad person. They're exploring that dark, the dark side of their personality, which is exactly what Bogart does in this film. I think one of the ways that you can read this movie is really kind of a uh, statement about the place that Hollywood was, was at at the time. I mean, we're talking about, you know, kind of right around the time that HUAC is going on and this whole idea of writers who aren't able to write. And we have Dixon, who is this writer who, for some reason, has been unable to write. Not necessarily that he's been on any sort of a blacklist, but he is this kind of, you know, figure that people can't get in. Uh, 
in touch with. They talk about trying to reach him via the telephone, and he's never available. He just won't answer his phone. His last few films have been flops, and he's just has been kind of out of the limelight, and now it's his time to kind of come back into the fold, as it were, and he doesn't necessarily go about it the right way. The movie starts with it starts with him out on the street and talking to this woman who was in a movie that he had written, and they're both in their individual cars. She's the passenger in one car, he's the driver of another, and she is, you know, sees him at this light. And it's so weird because they're having this kind of nice conversation, and then the husband suddenly is like, You, stop bothering my wife. Oh, you shouldn't have done it, honey. No matter how much money that pig's got. You pull over the curb. And what's wrong with right here? Why is this happening? And then you immediately find out that Dixon is kind of a hothead because rather than, you know, hey, buddy, you know, just kind of take it easy, he starts insulting this guy, calling him a pig, and the guy starts to get out of the car. And rather than pulling over, why don't we do it right here? Let's let's have our fight right here. And the guy finally pulls off. And so you immediately know that there's more to this Dixon Steel character than necessarily meets the eye. And then we go into the kind of quote-unquote Hollywood club. You know, we've, we've seen this kind of setting so many times before where we have all of the, the writers, the directors, the actors, studio people are all kind of gathering at this place called Paul's. And uh, we get um, really kind of his take, Dixon's take on Hollywood, where he's, again, he's insulting everybody. Well, he's also being insulted as well. They're like, oh, well, you know, you haven't written anything good since before the war. So if this is late, you know, this is 49, 50, when this comes out, it's like, well, you haven't had a hit in 10 years. So it's just them kind of picking on him. And to which I love his retort is, oh, yeah, well, you're a popcorn salesman. And just kind of throwing it back at him that, you know, your films suck, even though they make a lot of money. And he's coming to the defense of this guy, Charlie. He's this drunk thespian and this uh, junior executive. Uh, what is it? You put the son-in-law business back uh, <laughs> 50 years or whatever. He, he pops that guy in the face and everything. And again, we have that echo of um, why don't we do it right here? There's or what, What's the matter with right here where it's like. They uh, see this drunk actor and his agent and this director want to kind of move down the bar. But Dixon is like, no, no, this guy is the guy who we have based our fortunes off of. This is a classic actor. Let's sit here. Let's have a discussion right here. Why are we kind of distancing ourselves from him? And I see this as kind of also this way that we're, we're kind of, you know, he's all about holding on to the past and everything. And everybody else wants to kind of, you know, just take the uh, the laurels and kind of go well i think part of that is and it's exactly what you said in the setup of the film there's these two scenes right at the beginning where you know he's getting into fights and it's um backed up by one of the ladies in the bar where he gets he punches the guy before they call the cops uh, it's just a little cutaway but she's sitting there with her friend and she's like, there goes dicks again so this is obviously a pattern that he's established and it's it goes throughout the entire film where i, I think what nicholas ray is exploring is the fact that as this writer is is directing scenes of murder or writing scenes of murder he's saying that 
these artistic types have to be sort of close to this emotional core. It's, they wear their hearts on their sleeves, as it were. And a lot of that is supported later in the film when Dix's agent says things like, Violence is as much a part of him as the color of his eyes, the shape of his head. He's Dick Steele, and if you want him, you've got to take it all, the bad with the good. Dix, as the main character, and as we're getting into his head, is taking us to this land where you know violence can happen at any time. He's it's, it's about to snap, but it's that that makes his work good. It's that that he can take and turn into a work of art, which can be seen on the screen. And he is ready to go off pretty much at any time at any one yeah exactly after we get that kind of introduction where he you know is ready to get into a fight he gets into a fight we have a little bit of a respite here where uh mildred atkinson this hat check girl has been reading this book that uh he has been assigned to adapt into his screenplay and we have a little bit of a, a time there he takes her back to his place she thinks that he's going to try to make a pass at her but really he's just there to have her tell him the story of this book this really kind of thick book and he would much rather have her tell him the story the way that she would tell it to her aunt cora rather than him kind of slogging through this thing and he already kind of knows that it's tripe and by her description of the book it definitely does seem like it's tripe but it's interesting to me that um and we'll get into this a lot more later that a lot of the movie of In a Lonely Place feels like it's a, a discussion of adaptations as well, because mm-hmm. it comes from another work which is so removed from In a Lonely Place. The the movie, the book, is such a different entity that it's kind of neat to have this whole discussion of adaptations going on throughout the film. Yeah, and There's I no- think that's really interesting that you bring up about it, the um – how he has the hat check girl describe the book to him. It's just an extension of that cynicism, right? Or that longing for the past where scripts were written because, you know, that was the art form itself. Whereas he doesn't need to be able to read the book in order to write the movie. He would rather just have someone tell him the basic plot points and he can write his movie around that. We're talking about adaptation, but I don't see any Nicolas Cage in here. Much less two Nicolas Cages. (laughs) Exactly. I guess in the Greek, that would be Cage-I. Cage-I. This uh, Mildred Atkinson, she is a terrific character. I love the way that this is shot, the way that she is looking directly at the camera and laying out this whole story of this book and the way she is just butchering the English language as we go through here. Like rather than risque, or I guess the French language, rather than risque, she's, you know, oh, it's so risky. You know, <laughs> just at every turn, she's just, it, it's very, very well written, this whole section, because it's like you're trying to figure out exactly what she's trying to say because she's just changing the language so much there's like a an attempt at a word like apollo and a few other things i'm just like what exactly is she trying to say when she tries to say like bacteriologist or something it's like (laughs) what 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 are you talking about but yeah that was a very well written piece and this is also um in this area is where we get introduced to laurel gray the woman across the way from from uh dixon steel we get her very briefly as mildred and dixon and are going into his apartment, and then we get a little bit more for later. And this, to me, is kind of the some of the more noirish parts of, of the film is the way that 
we get to see her across the way from Dixon and the way that she's framed in the distance and he's framed in his doorway as he's looking at her. And just this kind of uh, watching and being watched and the way that we're kind of breaking the frame of the screen into other smaller frames. It's it's kind of a nice thing. I mean, obviously, we'd get it a lot more in something like a, a rear window where it's this whole idea of the apartment building and each window is a separate movie screen as it were but in this we kind of get a little bit of that as far as this voyeurism and the way that ray is breaking the screen into pieces and we get to see people contained within areas of the screen i think one of the interesting aspects of the set design were the the scroll work inside Dix's apartment, but he never actually uses that to sort of obscure the people behind it, but he does use it to condense the frame, right? Everyone has that walks through that scroll work with the gate has scroll work on the other side, but they're framed within that doorway. And this is really kind of sets us up here in this first few minutes of the film. We get to meet Mildred and then she disappears. And that's really the crux of the film is that Mildred is gone. She is uh, murdered. Dixon kind of falls asleep in his clothes and everything. And the next day we get this knock from Brub Nikolai. I love the word, the name Brub Nikolai, who's played by Frank Lovejoy, who is one of my favorite actors. And he and Dixon have passed. They have history together. They served together in the war. Dixon was actually Brub's commanding officer. And now the tables have kind of turned a little bit. Brub is more of the one who's in power. He's a police detective, and he's asking Dixon to come down to the station. No, this isn't a social call. Let's talk about this girl, Mildred Atkinson. Then we kind of get really the start of the mystery. Who is the one that killed Mildred Atkinson? And we've seen that Dixon has this temper, and we don't necessarily know if he is the one who killed her or not. And that's really where this movie goes, is this whole idea of, did this guy kill Mildred Atkinson, or did he not? And really, the whole time is the movie basically trying to make us think that, yes, it's entirely possible that he was. And it just is filled with all of these ideas of, here's Dixon Steele, He's got this violent temper. He does these things. He seems to get a gleam in his eye when he's talking about murder. And could he have been the one that killed this girl? And we start to form this relationship. The only one that can kind of prove his innocence, quote unquote, is Laurel Gray because she saw him. We have because of that scene that I just talked about. Again, she doesn't necessarily prove that he's innocent, just prove that he was where he said he was at this particular time. She didn't necessarily see the girl leave the apartment, doesn't necessarily know what's what happened while she was in the apartment. But yet, this is uh, his savior. We begin this relationship, and we begin this investigation almost at exactly the same time. And the rest of the film is just this kind of weaving of these two things together, of Dixon's potential for murder and her kind of falling in love with him and him definitely falling head over heels with her. Yeah, it's it's interesting that... This is another one of those issues about adaptation, right? As dark as the book is, whether it's a Humphrey Bogart film or whether it's the the Hayes Code that was in effect at the time, they just can't make that film. So how do you take the story 
and adapt it to the screen. Well, you sort of soften the the the, the crime element. So it's the murder of Mildred Atkinson is almost a MacGuffin, right? Because they, they solve the crime at some point, but it's it's almost unrelated to the plot. Once it gets the relationship started with Laurel, that's really what the film is about. Whereas the book, again, is, is much darker. Certainly the characters are there and they're in play, but it's a completely different type of story. But if you're making a Humphrey Bogart film, he's got the charm going, especially in the scenes with Mildred Atkinson. He's laughing with us, about what Mildred is saying, but it, it's not until later when he starts with Laurel that he, the, the darkness really starts to come out. But it's also the time where it really starts to work. It's sort of mining this darkness that gets him the creative juices flowing for him. And, and eventually he sits down and, and just bangs out this entire script over a, a few week period. He's banging it out. He's so into his own work that he doesn't even hear her when she comes in. She asks him this whole series of questions, and he's just giving these kind of grunt almost answers or the wrong answers to the questions kind of thing. And he is just heads down into this. She's taking what he's written, and I guess she's rewriting it, it sounds like, because she's also kind of working on the screenplay with him. Right, she's typing it out. He's working longhand, and she's typing it out into script form. So she is right there with him and working long nights, and they're forming this relationship over the script, which I find to be very nice. And, and again, this kind of talk about writers, it kind of reminds me, I'm trying to think of when Sunset Boulevard was. It was the same year, I think, wasn't it? Okay, so it makes total sense in the way that Joe Gillis kind of uh, forms his relationship with the the other writer, and they kind of are able to fall in love via a script. And this one, it's a little bit different, but it's also kind of that same cementing of the relationship over a script. And there's the whole idea of him being investigated by uh, Brub Nikolai, and we get to meet Brub's wife, Sylvia, and we get to have more of the police chief, who is, uh, I think it's uh, Lochner, who is kind of on his trail, and they're trying to trip him up with different things, uh, inviting uh, Dixon over to dinner with the Nikolais, and it's really, uh, I mean, you know, you, you you said, Jared, they solve the case fairly quickly. Not the police, but Dixon solves the case. It's almost immediately he's like, "Well, did you look at the boyfriend?" If I was, if I was writing this, it would be the boyfriend who is the one. I guess he's kind of like the Richard Castle of the 1950s <laughs> or something. And he just immediately solves this mystery, and then he even describes exactly how it would be. And this, to me, is one of the most uh, chilling scenes, is when he's talking to Brub and Sylvia and starts to explain to Brub exactly how this murder might have happened and, and plotting it all out and having them reenact it. What makes you so sure this murder was committed in the car? Well, if she'd been killed before she got in the car, the murderer would have hidden her body in the back. In that case, he couldn't have dumped her out without stopping. Now, you're driving up the canyon. Your left hand's on the wheel. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. She's, uh, she's telling you she's done nothing wrong. You pretend to believe her. You put your right arm around her neck. You get to a lonely place in the road, and you begin to squeeze. You're an ex-GI. You know judo. You know how to kill a person without using your hands. You're driving the car, and... And you're strangling her. 
You don't see her bulging eyes or protruding tongue. Go ahead, go ahead, bruv. Squeeze harder. You love her, and she's deceived you. You hate her patronizing attitude. She looks down on you. She's impressed with celebrities. She wants to get rid of you. You squeeze harder. Harder. Squeeze harder. It's wonderful to feel her throat crush under your arm. Rob, stop it. How did it hurt you tonight? No. I think so. Yeah, and this is really one of the main places within the film where you see more of a stylistic approach. The room gets dark around these three people as they're sitting in the room, except for Dix's eyes, right? So there's a, a light that's shining across his eyes, which really reflects that opening shot. He's driving down the road, and all you see of him, because you, you're looking at the the back of his head you see his eyes framed in the rear view mirror but this is also the places we're talking about where you know he starts really getting into it as he's directing as he's writing creating this murder on set it's almost like he's directing a play that really gets the creative juices flowing and then of course i love the echo of this probably about an hour or so later when he's driving with laurel and has his arm around her exactly the same way that brubs was around sylvia and you just keep waiting for him to to grab on and start choking the life out of her the same way that he had brubs start to choke sylvia it's very tragic in a way because as much as these people love each other there are the out, these outside forces working against them. So people are getting into Laurel's head, whether it's for legitimate reasons, like they're actually scared of this guy, or they, they prefer uh, the, her ex-husband. She was married before. So they're working on her and, and putting these things in her brain, which dovetail with the actions that she's seen from Dix to form this sort of fear in her mind that may not have been there had there not been any external forces. I'm totally reminded of like uh, Pillow Talk when uh, Rock Hudson is explaining to Doris Day, uh, Rock Hudson as the cad is explaining to Doris Day what Rock Hudson as the gentle cowboy will be saying to right. her the next day and just kind of feeding her exactly what's going on only to then disprove it as the gentle cowboy kind of role. Perception is just as important as uh, reality. What do you guys think about Martha and the masseuse? Talk about somebody that's trying to get into uh, Laurel's head here. With her, I actually wrote down in my notes that um, I go, lesbian lover keeps calling her, you know, these these cute names and all that stuff and telling her, well, this isn't going to work and that isn't going to work. Like, it seems almost like they were together at some point and now she's with a man or something and it's like you know this isn't going to work and this is you know going to fail like what are you doing and i was it was just really odd and i don't know if you guys are picking up on that or not i definitely was picking up on that that was just so strange to me just the way that she i mean they make a point to say that she's married and has a son and everything but for me it was just like wow this woman is just such a 
prototypical lesbian at this time, mm. very mannish, very tough and everything. And the way that she is just, yeah, really trying to, uh, I mean, really everybody is trying to quote unquote poison Laurel against Dix, but it seems to me that Martha really kind of has her, um, her hooks into Laurel as far as this goes and is really trying to, uh, convince her <laughs> almost with physical force by, you know, this very rough massage. Yeah, it's certainly not clear. I mean, if they're not lesbians or they didn't have a relationship at one point, what interest Martha would have in her in, uh, if, it, if they're not lovers? And trying to figure out if it's monetary, if she's got some sort of interest in her not being with dicks, if she gets more money out of her if she's alone – uh, is it as simple as she's going to lose that weekly masseuse appointment? It's interesting to me because so many of the characters are in the book, albeit in different form a lot of time, especially Mel, Dix's manager in the movie. But Martha is completely a creation of the screenwriter right. of the, of this, this, uh, the film. So it's just like, whoa, where did this person come in from and why her? I mean, it could have been more Sylvia. It could have been other people doing the same kind of discussion. It could have been that ex-husband or something, but this character just seems to kind of stick out so much for me. I think that the only thing I can figure out would be in that period, as we talked about before, sexuality in some way or implied sexuality being used as a um, character flaw or a character negativity trait. It's the only thing that I could think of is that if they implied some sort of lesbian relationship between them, then it makes her seem more suspect. It makes the Laurel character seem even like maybe she killed this girl or something because that's what I was thinking. I was like, well, maybe she killed her, but why would she kill her? Because that doesn't make any sense unless she was kind of like pining for Mr. Steele and thought, well, you know, if her if he's dating her and I get her out of the way, then I can have him to myself. I don't know. It was just it, – it's an interesting choice, and I think that it leads a lot into interpretation. Can you get a more masculine name than Dick Steele? <laughs> I, I was going to say that's like, you know, that's porn before, you know, 20-something-odd oh, yeah. years before porn. Buck naked, meet Dick Steele. Oh, the porn, porn's been around for a long time. If If – uh, yeah, you mentioned that I work at the George Eastman House. Yeah, we do have porn from the 1920s we've done some preservation on. Uh, one in particular I remember called uh, Cast Cast Ashore. It's got – yeah, so the just briefly. So this, this woman comes on board the ship to pleasure a man, and they get caught by the captain, and then the captain has to punish the woman, and then he has to punish the man. So this is like 1924, 1925. So Dick Steele is 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 right in keeping with that. I guess kind of there like Frank Lovejoy, but that was his real name. <laughs> and then and then I was thinking about the Nikolai last name, and this is in the fifties, obviously, and that's a Russian sounding name. Yeah, that is interesting, and I you know, I mean Brub is such a a, a strange name too yeah, as, as a first name. I was wondering if that was short for something. The closest I got was Brubaker. But it's one of the oh. last name. Yeah, and the and of course Lochner kind of you know it sounds like he's going to lock him up or whatever. But yeah, just but these names are all in the book. Yeah, everything except for Martha, even Mildred Atkinson. Poor Mildred Atkinson, who gets so much more play in the movie than she does necessarily in the book. Oh yeah. 
it's interesting to me, not only do we have this whole idea of people kind of poisoning Laurel against Dix, but then we have Dix starting to suspect Laurel. And really, just like every little thing starts to set him off because he immediately he he really starts to get into this whole idea that she is betraying him somehow and it's just this weird kind of paranoia that's going on he finds out at one point that uh she has been called into the cops to talk a little bit more to captain lochner he finds this out from sylvia when sylvia brub and and laurel are all together with him and he just goes nuts goes absolutely crazy and, and just like takes off in this in this rush and has this other scene of potential i mean not potential but real violence he is is you know almost gets into an accident with this guy he uh gets the guy out of the car and starts beating the shit out of him and at one point he takes a rock and he's going to brain this guy with this rock and it's all basically the violence he is wants to do against Laurel has been shifted over to this guy, this poor like bystander almost, and uh, it's her who has to scream at him and get him out of this state because otherwise he's just literally going to brain this guy with this rock, and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this guy is so violent, and this has been probably the biggest outburst that we've seen. Even though we did get a scene earlier in the film where it's Lochner reading off all the mm-hmm. charges that have been filed or dismissed against Dixon, and he's got a long rap sheet. And so it's uh, interesting the way the pendulum swings between him being so lovey-dovey with Laurel to then all of a sudden just being in this rage and this jealousy that's going on. And it, it uh, it, it's scary, you know, and it's uh, very interesting that it can happen in this love story. All of a sudden, we have this violence reintroduced. Yeah, it's important that you bring up the uh, the rap sheet again. It's one of those things that set up his longstanding history of violence. But it's interesting that he is allowed to get away with it on on so many times. So I think it was. It was either Laurel defending him or it was his agent again uh, said he's a writer. People like him can afford to be temperamental. So they're just accepting that this is part of the creative process, that this violence, this emotionalism, uh, this propensity to to for outbursts is, is all part of the creative process. But because he's being successful, they're willing to take a little bit of that in order to get something out of him. And talk about an enabler. I mean, Mel Lippman, his his agent, at one point, Dixon smacks the guy, and just it becomes this whole like abused wife situation where it's like, oh, it's not his fault, it's my fault, I shouldn't have done that, and he just becomes this like little cowering man when he's in Dix's presence and just is like, oh no no no, it's it's all me, it's not him, and it's just it's really kind of sad the way that it plays out. And it's cyclical as well, because in his romance of the past, Dix also enables Charlie, who's become a drunk. He can't remember his lines on set. He can't get a job because of this. And he goes around spouting poetry or poetic verse in a very uh, sort of haughty way. But basically, Dix is just giving him money so he can go get drunk just because he used to like him or was, was a good actor at one point in time. I don't know why I feel this way, but as I was watching it, I really didn't feel like Bogart's character was all that crazy. I mean, it seems like most of his stuff is provocated, 
It's he doesn't seem to be a loose cannon. Uh, I mean, he takes it too far, yeah, but it just seems that he's kind of a raw nerve at times and you get the feeling that he you know it, like they often talk about with men it's like men deal with depression and sadness by getting angry and that just is what i saw him as a very depressed and sad man who instead of crying you know and getting it out in an, in that way is instead using his fists and getting loud with people and ultimately he's not a murderer which is the biggest irony of the film is that Laurel is so convinced by the end of the film that he was the one that killed Mildred Atkinson and that he had solved the, the, the murder pretty much right off the bat. It was the boyfriend who ended up killing Mildred. But yet the whole rest of the film is this whole exploration of, you know, is the person that you're with capable of this kind of violence and what provokes them and all this? I mean, I kind of see your point, Rob, when it comes to the idea of he is provoked a lot of times and that's why he does act out this way. I just can't condone this kind of violence. I've never been the kind of person who, you know, when I'm, you know, blind with anger, I can't even like pick up a, a dish and throw it across the room kind of thing. So much less punch somebody. So I can't necessarily get behind him, even though I can see where he's kind of coming from sometimes. And then the whole idea of them giving the script to the director to approve and everything without him necessarily knowing. I mean, it ends up being a good thing. I don't think that I would get that upset if that were to happen to me, but he definitely does. And so I I, I know what you're saying. I just... Uh, can't yeah can't really get behind dicks. No, I'm not I'm not condoning his behavior. <laughs> I'm just saying that I happen to understand it. And then also when I look at it in the context of that era, like I said, these are not guys who cry. These are guys who fought in World War II. This is my grandfather's generation. It's like no sign of weakness, you know, kind of thing. So when you look at it through that lens, you can go, yeah, he's making bad choices, but you can understand that his choices are limited given where he is in his life, his circle, his education, whatever, that is how he reacts to the world. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but you can kind of understand why he reacts the way he reacts. That's the sort of noir that I'm really interested in, is the films that take a character and make him empathetic. It's something you can understand, as you're saying. You know, you're getting into the mindset of this person, and then you're following in their footsteps, and every choice that they make, although they're getting closer and closer to the edge, is something that you understand because of the situation and their feelings and how they view the world. So this is really why I think this would fit in a noir context because you're sitting with Dick Steele and you understand the fact that he's getting pushed and that he's on edge. He's come from the war and a lot of the noir films deal with soldiers coming back from the war and it's it's part of the noir aesthetic is that you're trying to deal with this post-war world and all these people who were great guys before they went are coming back and they're getting into trouble and they're drinking and they're you know getting into more and more dangerous areas and we're trying to understand why they're doing it well 
these are the films that explore that issue. This is a man that's come back from the war and he's on edge and he's creative and we're giving him excuses for why he's being violent because he's being creative and we're allowing him to get away with it. And he does almost murder, even though he's not the murderer of the film. This Laurel who is protecting him and urging him on is also the one who, because she betrays him or he feels that he betrays, she betrays him, uh, almost pushes him to the edge where he's going to kill this football player with a rock. But she's also the one that stops him. So it's, it's that line that he rides with her that is really what Noir explores. And for me, their relationship is about balance. I, I originally sort of thought when they first got together that their relationship was about her hiding something. You know, I, I often felt up until near the end that she was always sort of hiding that there was something, you know, like I said, this leads to the suspicion with her that she was always kind of hiding something from him. And what, what I kind of come to understand, and like you were saying, Mike, of him being um, like head over heels for her, is that there is something that she gives him that he needs that he can't get. She kind of calms him. She um, helps him to, you know, kind of navigate the world a little bit because he can get so focused in on the work. Like there's that one scene where she's talking to him and he's like, yeah, in a minute, you know, he's just writing and keeps answering these questions that don't make any sense, you know, that are kind of humorous. And then even, you know, the scene as you were talking about with the beating and all of that stuff of her trying to pull him back from the edge, just the idea that, you know, you may be, messed up but if you have a good woman in your life that they can kind of like help you navigate the world and and i think that that is like i said this this idea of the doomed romance for me in the film is because of that it's like no matter how much she cared about him or he cared about her there was still this thing in there and it just gets so like like wedged in and it gets worse and worse and worse even when you get to the understanding that he didn't kill the girl it's like it's so sort of damaged that they can't bring it back together and that's sort of the tragedy okay we're going to take a break and play the second half of our interview with patrick mcgilligan the author of nicholas ray the glorious failure of an american director after these brief messages swear you'll listen to the good the bad and the odd the good he has the cruelty of Jack Nicholson's Joker, the wit of Mark Hamill's Joker, yeah. and the laugh of Cesar Romero. <laughs> the bad. He's bald, he's got a cat, he lives in a volcano. What else you need? And the odd. I've that seen bits great. of it, it's really stupid. Swear to me. Just a couple of guys talking about movies. You can find us on www. The good, the bad, and the odd.com. What a beautiful podcast. Do you like movie reviews that are insightful, thought provoking, and delivered by somebody who's trained to critically dissect every aspect of a motion picture without ever having to use obscenities? Then you've got the wrong show. Kruger Nation Horror Podcast is ready to feed your slasher movie and exploitation needs. There'll be more blood, expletives, and titties than you can shake your grandma's beetle flaps at. Visit www.krugernation.com Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneed.com wants to give you more. 
with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Speaking of Gloria Graham... Yeah, she's our link between the two films, huh? How did she kind of affect, or what was her impact on Nicholas Ray? I had to reread both sections in both books in order to reacquaint myself with my own background on, on and thinking about these films because I leave these books behind when I go on to the next book. I was reading about The Bad and the Beautiful, uh, referring to her background, and I also read about how she was in the film with William Powell, which shows that a bad top editor and a bad mental thing going on when I wrote that page. Gloria Graham was so uh, exciting on film for, again, a pretty short period of time, but this is that period of time where everything she did was very electric, and everything she was doing in her personal life was similar, and she was uh, married and undergoing a bitter separation leading to a divorce uh, with Ray at the time that she was in a lonely place. She, I wouldn't say she saves both films, but she makes both films, every scene that she's in, you know, extremely watchable. She's wonderful in The Big Heat. I find her less good in Nick Ray's film, and I find Nick Ray's film less good because I find it very, uh, I see all the compromises in the various script versions. Um, I see the sort of twisting to get, get the story past production code, and she becomes, she starts the film off as a kind of B-girl and then becomes a kind of lovey-dovey, uh, you know, aide to Bogart while he's writing a script and then at the end becomes really, uh, goes back to being a kind of uh, hysterical victim, you know, and it's all a very film noirish thing. So I don't find it very realistic. I find the big heat pretty realistic, you know, considering. Uh, it's a terrible word to use because it's probably meaningless, but I mean, I find it more credible the big heat. I find the other film very stagey, but she is very, very good always. Um, and it's never uh, her fault. It's usually, you know, at that point in her career, if there's a fault in scenes, even in Bad and the Beautiful, you know, when she's so wonderful, she, she, <laughs> she waltzes in and does things that are just kind of, and it's not a very big part really, but she waltzes in and does things that take take over the screen. And even if they're kind of silly, she's just so good at it, you know. Um, so she she was very very alive at that moment in time, and she you know she turns both films you know the tragedy of both films you know pivots 
on her. So she could be besides sexy and funny and uh, she's a tragic, you know, she, I think she was a tragic persona and she, she portrays both very well in each film. Now you said you could see the way that in a lonely place kind of suffered from having to kind of pull back and everything. I just want to clarify is that you looking at the film and kind of inferring this stuff, or did you happen to see earlier drafts of the scripts, or what was that? Oh, yeah, I saw drafts of the scripts, and I either did interviews or read interviews with the writers of these films. In both cases, I'm talking about, you know, from the original source material, how it changes to becoming the film, and, and there's a lot more... Uh, that's right, where there's a lot more sort of acrobatics going on with in a lonely place with a series of writers trying to get it past the production code with Ray and the other production team, which included Bogart's partner, um, Robert Lord, who had been a writer at Warner Brothers and was a kind of hokey writer, you know, in, in of of his of the type at, at in this heyday in the 30s. There's sort of a lot of hokey things, from my point of view, being done to get the script past uh, the censors. And uh, The Big Heat doesn't suffer any of that. And uh, some people love it. Uh, and some people love that about film noir. Uh, and the hokey aspect of it, or sort of that that uh, that little bit of doggerel recited, you know, by Humphrey Bogart, um, you know, at the end of the film when he's failed by revealing his true colors to uh, Gloria Graham and is walking off, which I believe Ray wrote. It's, you know, to me, it's corny. Parts of it are corny, corny. But see, the parts that I think are corny, other people love. So I'm saying it's partly sensibility and uh, that I find Rebel Without a Cause, for example, to be corny all the way through, um, almost scene by scene. Uh, almost everybody in the film weeps, you know. Uh, I think nobody in the film doesn't weep. You know, Jane, Jimmy Dean, James Dean weeps several times. Everybody's weeping all the time. And so I find it a kind of a weepy film with sort of uh, show-busy touches. Other people love it. And you can't fault the performers. And that's one of the things that makes Rebel Without a Cause watchable, and that's one of the things that makes... Ray's films watchable. He's wonderful with actors. He had been an actor. He had tried to be an actor. He had uh, great actors had great responses to him. But again, in both cases, you know, Rebel Without a Cause or In a Lonely Place. To me, the faults begin with the script, and you know, you can then argue. And I think you know, most of the rest of Ray's career bears that bears this out that he had problems with scripts because he was not much of a you know starter and finisher in terms of scripts and he was not a great guide to the writers and I think each of the writers on on in a lonely place well Robert Lord probably started out by himself and did the first treatment which is you know and he probably sort of got it in the ballpark of what Bogart and he and Ray wanted it to do. But the other writers are on record as saying, you know, Ray really didn't really say very much. He wasn't very helpful. Uh, he really left the leadership of the script to Lord and Bogart, who uh, really weren't great <laughs> at leadership of the script. And they had good script writers. You know, they had Andrew Salt, they had Endon North. Uh, but it, it's not, a, I don't, I find it a corny script. 
corny script and in a kind of film noir uh, way, uh, redeemed by um, deep emotion on the part of the actors, which I'm sure is, was invested in the material by the director as well. At parts of the film, good performances by the actors, but not not throughout, because I think both of them just, they have to do these huge mood swings, you know, Bogart and and Gloria Graham. So I prefer Gloria Graham in The Big Heat, you know, where her character is uh, consistent. The problem with Bogart in In a Lonely Place, from my point of view, is that in the book, he's an actual serial killer, which he was sort of uh, interested in playing. And so they kept trying to stick with that until in the end he becomes, you know, actually a really, really good Hollywood screenwriter. He's he's a fake writer in the novel, um, and he's a serial killer. And so by the end you have him be, it all becomes this sort of romantic contortion between him and her over suspicions that he might be a killer, which he is not. Um, although he's almost driven to it by his jealousy and paranoia. And that's interesting, and it, it is interesting at, par- at, at points. I don't find it fascinating um, for the whole film. Other people do. It's a beloved film. I just try, you know, in my books, and I, I don't really like to say I don't like this film or I don't like that film or this is a good film or that's a bad film. I just try to explain what went on behind the scenes and to some extent identify why a film is a particular way. And um, sometimes uh, that comes out to be, as in the case of writers who aren't speaking to their director very much or are unhappy with the drafts and think the scene isn't good, even though other people love it when they see it played on screen. You know, sometimes that tends to color my views of the film. And other times, uh, you know, that would be my view of the film anyway. Did you kind of see the screenplay go from more of that Dorothy Hughes serial killer killer story into this? I mean, it's it's 180 degrees away. This whole idea of the the screenwriter and everything—it's it, just yes, yes, it is. Did you see that kind of evolution of it? I saw that in my research. Yeah, look, it couldn't work the way Dorothy Hughes wrote it. No. So, Somebody and I, you know, somebody in the Lord Bogart partnership. Because again, Ray was not really powerful. He was only powerful in terms of his ability to fit into that relationship. But somebody in that relationship, whether it was Lord or Bogart, initially said, "Wow, this would be a really interesting thing to do." Uh, however, they could never do it, and probably they lacked the willpower to do it, you know. Um, I find The Big Heat to be a much tougher, braver, tragic movie, which kills Gloria Graham, kills the hero's wife in a bomb blast at the beginning. So I find that to be tough. Um, and I, But other people would disagree. They, they, you know, they'd say, well, I don't like The Big Heat at all compared to In a Lonely Place because they like the very, you know, conceit uh, that that I find corny. I've always been curious about the Gloria Graham character in in a lonely place. That whole weird scene with her and the female masseuse, which just feels so coded to lesbianism, at least on the masseuse's part. But it doesn't really seem to to add up to anything. No, it's uh, I write about it in my book a little bit. Um, I don't think it's. Uh, 
no, my recollection, and I may be wrong, is that the masseuse is in the novel or was in the script drafts, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, she, I'm not sure, or maybe they just thought this would be a, uh, an interesting scene. I don't know. Um, it's an interesting scene. It's a good scene. You know, for me, like, um, as I said, every scene with Gloria Graham is a good scene, and she makes it alive. But there really is no, not much, uh, you know, if you would call it, lesbianism in, in Ray's work um, or in, uh, you know, film or in films in general at that time. So I don't know whether that's what it is. I'm not sure. I don't think I have a big opinion about it. The only thing that kind of speaks to that for me with Ray's other stuff is then with Johnny Guitar, how that kind of really comes to the fore in that film. Well, that's true. And that's just very true, in fact. And that's uh, a really good rejoinder to me. It's true about Johnny Guitar, but you know what? It's true about the novel of Johnny Guitar. But, I mean, that again is if you want to think that women as gunfighters are somehow a lesbian attraction or that two women gunfighters in the same scene somehow means that they have a lesbian attraction because that's in the book. And then, I mean, the two women gunfighters are in the book. And they don't have a lesbian attraction in the book. She has a love-hate thing, but the love is really, you know, envy for her power. I mean, Mercedes McCambridge character has it. So it's not, it's not really lesbian. It's just two women. I think anytime you have a, a scene with a masseuse and a woman, <laughs> that's going to be the inference. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying I'm not sure it's too sharp in that scene. The book is a little less film noirish, you know. It's a little bit more like crime procedural, um, although uh, from a certain point of view. And it could just be <clears throat> a relatively realistic scene, meaning you know, female masseuse working the Hollywood racket could be lesbian. I guess it doesn't help either. Going back to Johnny Guitar, it doesn't help that Mercedes McCambridge and Joan Crawford both have the shorter hair and kind of are you know, have that butch look going about them. Well, and, you know, there are rumors that, you know, Joan Crawford may have been lesbian or, like, interested in women, but I, I, I don't know. You know, like I said, I think if you had a, uh, a half-dressed woman getting massaged by a woman in any movie, by the way, that's probably a pretty rare scene anyway, that you immediately have those inferences from a lot of people. And and probably the people writing the scenes or doing the scenes, you know, have the same inferences. I don't think it's played that way for me. But I don't have a I don't have like a great memory of it. I guess uh, continuing on with the gay theme a little bit, I was always impressed with Rebel Without a Cause just because of the Salminio character and and his relationship with James Dean and yeah, especially Salminio uh, I mean, with. Oh yeah, I mean, have you read my Ray book? Because because Ray is uh, you know I don't want to put a word to it but he's he has affairs with men as well as with women he he was uh, you know the contemporary word would be bisexual but I don't know whether that is suitable I don't know whether that covers it uh, he's definitely aware of and interested in men and there's a lot of male homosexuality of and inferences of that sort in his films, as there are in a lot of people's films, sometimes even when they aren't bisexual or homosexual, a lot of men, uh, you know, like Hawks, for example, 
you know, undoubtedly was not bisexual or homosexual, but he has all these sort of intimate male friendships, you know, in his movies. So, yeah, he, that's a strain, but that doesn't mean, you know, because you're gay that you're going to have, like, the interest in lesbians and be raising that as a flag all the time. And I, it might make you comfortable with it. It might make you comfortable with uh, women uh, in, in uh, you know, chaparrales and with guns, you know. But not so uh, far from film noir, you know, not so far from gun crazy, you know, not far from gun crazy at all. <laughs> You know, with Peggy Cummings, and 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 Johnny uh, Guitar is a B western. Yeah, he did a lot of B pictures. Well, he was sort of a B director until Rebel Without a Cause. You know, I mean, he did a John Wayne film, but John Wayne did a lot of schlocky films, you know, as well as good ones. And like Flying Leather Next is a pretty schlocky film. He was mostly a B director, you know, until Rebel Without a Cause, which really raised his profile. And then in various ways, you know, his world fell in on him. So, I, I, you know, I don't know how much of it is a trope of the genre. I don't find it much of a sensitivity to gay women in his work that I can think of. You know, most of the women are, I don't know. I don't know whether I could characterize the women, but there's a lot of sort of old-fashioned, you know, boy-girl romances in his movies, you know, much closer to Romeo and Juliet, kind of dreamy and idealistic and, and tragic. So you're currently working on the Wells book. It sounds like you're going back and revising some of your other stuff. How many pokers do you usually have in the fire at one time? Yeah, I used to have two, and and nowadays I usually only have one. I mean, I used to be doing a backstory or some oral history when I was doing it, but, but I am editing um, or supervising the editing of a great number of uh, university press books now, and that's very time-consuming. And so I'm usually only doing one book. However... You asked me about dead or alive people. When they're still alive, there's no ending to the book is the problem. My Jack book is about 15 years old. My, I actually it's by closer to 20. And my Clint Eastwood book, for example, is 15 years old, and I revised it for Spain and France. If somebody's still alive and you've missed the last 20 years of their life in a book, then the book becomes outdated, whereas actually, you know, I did so much work on the books that they, they have a great you know, continuing value if I update them. So I'm just doing that with my left hand, and actually while I'm waiting for my editor to get back to me with notes for the Orson Welles book, because it's really hard for me, and I don't try to remember everything about Nicholas Ray when I'm done, because all I can think of now really is is Orson Welles. So for me, it's kind of a break to go back and take a look at the Nicholson book for a couple of weeks and start figuring out how I can update it for a U.S. A new U.S. edition. You know, probably coinciding with or getting close to Jack's, you know, 80th birthday in 2017. That's a lot easier than doing a whole separate book at the same time. And it's a good break from Orson Welles, who is starting to starting to weigh me down. It's got to be tough to find a lot of information about Wells before Citizen Kane. I know there were some newspaper articles, and especially when he was in New York. You're just going to be astonished because there are there's books. There's another book that's just all about his early years leading up to and including Citizen Kane. And uh, my book will show you that that kind of reporting, as I say, usually isn't done. There was a tremendous amount left to find. Discoveries are astonishing, quite interesting uh, in terms of his overall career. And, you know, the trick of the book is to, I'm tucking Citizen Kane into um, the early years, but I'm also 
tucking the rest of his career by inference and sometimes by direct uh, into the early years as well. So it's sort of, you know, like the Jesuits say, give me somebody for the first X number of years and I'll have them for life. You see him pretty much formed uh, as the book develops and um, it's astonishing. I mean, uh, things will have to be rewritten in Wikipedia and other, some books will just become obsolete. Some other books will just become obsolete. And I didn't know, I mean, I didn't know what there was to find. Um, I just went looking. I went looking in places that people haven't looked. And then I went looking deeper in places that people, as you say, articles that mentioned things that are cited. You know, I went looking deeper in places. And it's pretty astonishing. There's some very, very surprising uh, rearrangement of facts. <laughs> A very different uh, real-time narrative that's much more sympathetic than any other uh, book to date that's other than Barbara Leeming's, which is very sympathetic, and to some extent Frank Brady's, which is pretty sympathetic. It's it's a real-time alternative narrative to what you think you know. We, we did a... Um podcast about the Magnificent Ambersons and talked a lot about the parallels between that and his early life. Yeah. Well, you know, I have to be careful because my book isn't coming out until next year. Um, but a lot of the uh, early, earliest stuff uh, and uh, leading up to his parents' departure from Kenosha especially is, is resonant of Magnificent Ambersons, but somewhat differently than has been generalized. And with a lot of sort of uh, surprising facts and corrections to what has been generally believed. Right. Well, how about we uh, make plans and um, once your book comes out next year, we talk about that. Anytime. Anytime. I'm happy to do it. I, I'm just, uh, you know, I, was, I even did bullet points for the publicity department the other day because they're starting to you know, get to work on it or think about it. And even in the bullet points, I was... Uh, I was uh, secretive <laughs> because there's some very, very good surprises. Uh, like I say, things that will require Wikipedia to be rewritten, not just on the subject of Orson Welles, you know, because a lot of people write about this might be a good kind of closing thing to say, which is that a lot of people write these books about film or films because they love the subject or they love the films. I am, you know, a lover of film and books and food and, you know, just like all people, but I, I don't write books for that reason, you know. And so I'm always going at it with my own technique and my own method, which I believe to be different than everyone else's. There are some people that come close to it and, and do their own version of it, like Scott Eyman, to a different extent because he doesn't do it very often, Joe McBride, because he's only done a couple books that are sort of big biographical books, but not too many people do it, and it's hard to do, and um, it yields a different result than sitting there and watching Citizen Kane 17 times, which is, yields also a very good result, but, but a different result than going out and looking through microfilm and court records and archives that have never been touched and traveling to the places and, and looking around and talking to people and churches and newspapers and letters and journals and unpublished memoirs and trying to be as repertorial as possible, being as close 
to facts as possible, as opposed to ranging wide in your imagination uh, with with uh, selected facts. Before we get going again, let's play an interview with Stephen Rybin and Will Scheibel about the book they edited, Lonely Places, Dangerous Ground, Nicholas Ray in American Cinema. My name is Will Scheibel, and I currently teach at Indiana University. I just recently defended my dissertation in the Film and Media Studies program here at Indiana University. My department has generously kept me on as an instructor. I'm, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Steve Ribbon's co-editor of Lonely Places, Dangerous Ground, but I'm also in the process of finishing up a single author monograph on Nicholas Ray, um, which looks at his reputation, and that's um, under contract right now with Pratt's. Well, my name is Steve Riven. Um, I teach uh, film at Georgia Gwinnett College. It's a small liberal arts college just north of Atlanta, Georgia. And as Will said, I was the co-editor of Lonely Places, Dangerous Ground uh, with him. Big fan of Nicholas Ray, so I'm looking forward to talking with you about him. How did you guys meet? We met actually well, at a um, film conference, right? Um, we met at the, right. yeah, the Society for Cinema and Media Studies conference, I think four years ago. And I was giving it was uh, the one. Go ahead. Oh no, sorry. It was the, it was the one in Los Angeles in 2010, if I remember right. Okay, okay, that's right. Yeah. And so we met at that conference, and I was giving a paper on um, Nicholas Ray. And after I gave it, uh, you know, Will introduced himself and told me he was working on a dissertation on Nicholas Ray, and, and we kind of hit it off and, and shortly cooked up the idea of putting together a, a collection of essays on Nicholas Ray's films. How did you kind of go about that? What was your process as far as did you kind of put it out there into the uh, academic community? We're looking for papers on Ray, or, or how did you kind of collect these together? One of the things that kind of made it just a perfect constellation of, of events and ideas for, for the book was we realized that we were both working on Ray when this larger rediscovery of Ray seemed to be going on in the larger film community, film culture, both academic, but I think probably even more noticeably in kind of popular cinephile discourses online and in film magazines um, that coincided with the Nicholas Centenary um, that was celebrating uh, the 100th year of his birth. So there was all this kind of retrospective happening, um, people kind of reevaluating canonical Ray films. And um, this was also right around the time that Susan Ray, Nicholas Ray's widow, um, was preparing We Can't Go Home Again, which was his final film never completed. Um, she was sort of finishing it and restoring it for premiere at the Venice Film Festival in 2011. So there other people that were also um, interested in Ray at the same moment that, that we were interested in. We, uh, you know, knew uh, a lot of the people uh, were in the book. We, we knew of their work. Many of them had written on Ray. So we reached out to a number of them. Some of them had reached out to us and some of the essays um, we solicited on certain topics, but for the most part, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, that, that we pretty much curated the collection based on people that we knew who were either experts on Ray or experts on classical Hollywood. Yeah, I think that's right. We we were really lucky because we found um, a, the, the editor at Cine Press, the series editor of the Horizons of Cinema series, Mary Pomerantz, a huge Nicholas Ray fan, a terrific scholar, written a lot of Nicholas Ray, and he was really supportive of this project from the beginning and, and kind of gave us a, a, a free reign uh, to 
sort of put this project together and, and to solicit the authors that we wanted to uh, to have contribute to the book. And so we were really lucky in that regard to have a, a terrific editor. Uh, so, yeah, we, we were really able to kind of curate the book kind of in a very free way, which was really exciting. Now, you both have pieces inside of the book. How did you guys decide what you were going to do yourselves as far as kind of contributing to this? I'll start with you, Will. I think, um, and, and Steve will probably say more about this um, in just a, just a bit, but um, I think Steve was already working on We Can't Go Home Again. That's the film that he covers in his chapter. And so it, it kind of worked out that he was able to, to kind of funnel that research into this particular essay. And I had just finished um, a seminar paper uh, at Indiana University because I was still a PhD student when we were working on this. I just finished a seminar paper on Bigger Than Life, the film Bigger Than Life, um, which was in um, Alexander Doty's class on melodrama. So that was the sort of final paper for the class. You know, I thought, well, I've, I've already got this this piece on Ray that I've already written for this class, so it wouldn't uh, take too much to kind of turn it into a book chapter. So I cut it down and revised it, and my chapter looks at the reception, the kind of popular reception of Bigger Than Life as a male melodrama. Melodrama oftentimes in cinema discourses talked about in terms of the woman's picture or the romantic family melodrama. You know, there's this kind of subcategory, I guess, of, of uh, mid-century melodramas that deal with male protagonists. Bigger Than Life is one of them, but um, Home from the Hill or Some Came Running, the Vincent Minnelli films would be other examples. I look at the sort of way in which the film kind of registered in this uncomfortable way with, with critics, popular critics at the time because it was well received, even though now it's considered one of race's greatest films. And the way that it kind of taps into popular discourses, cultural discourses on humanity at the time um, and the role of, of the American male in the, the domestic space, in the family and um, the concerns with labor, both in the domestic space, but also the professional space that the, the film deals with. And that's kind of picked up in some of the critical discourse. And that's that's right that I, I was working on that that separate essay on we can't go home again and it did sort of just uh, kind of translate over to the the collection. I think one of the reasons why I was working on that film on that essay at that time was because I was at the very beginning of my own teaching career. Really, I just gotten my PhD and just sort of finally found the full time teaching job, and I was really sort of fascinated by the fact that Nicholas Ray, late in his career, late in his life in the 1970s, was a teacher, a teacher of film. And I just wanted to explore sort of his philosophy of pedagogy uh, through the film he made with these students at Binghamton University, part of the State University of New York. And that was really the attraction to me, to to write about that film and to think about how he approached teaching film, uh, really the students and and, and creating this film, We Can't Go Home Again, with him. And it's a really fascinating document of, I think, what he was able to achieve as a teacher during the 1970s. Sort of a singular example of a Hollywood filmmaker kind of branching out, becoming an experimental filmmaker and a teacher at the same time. I was just sort of fascinated by that, which is why I sort of stuck with that film uh, for my own piece for the collection. You talked about how Ray became a teacher late in life. He, He kind of became a director relatively late in life. He wasn't one of these um, Hollywood brats or even coming up in the system and, and, you know, emigrating from Germany or anything. He didn't start directing until he was almost 40. Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. He lived a lot of lives. I mean, before he 
was a film director. He, he had an apprenticeship with Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, he he uh, uh, traveled around the United, United States uh, documenting music, did some work with uh, the group theater in the 1930s. And so before he, before he came to cinema, he already had a, sort of a, a, a world of experience in other disciplines. And so he, he it was very different in that sense from, as you say, the movie brats that would come after him, the, the, you know, the Martin Scorsese's and, and the De Palma's and, and, and those sorts of figures. Um, uh, even though he does sort of share their rebelliousness in a way, he's also coming from a very different place. I'm really shocked to see just how many films he directed once he did begin directing, just the pace of it. I mean, to see three and four films being released in a single year from him just seems like he, once he got the directing bug or once he got into the Hollywood that he just took off. That's right. And and he what's interesting is, you know, he was not seen as uh, a major, major director in the 1950s, despite um, the frequency at which he was directing films. You know, he wasn't like Hitchcock or Howard Hawks or Otto Preminger, who had a sort of public celebrity, recognizable public celebrity in their own right that was apart from their stars. I mean, Nicholas Ray's films in the 50s were, were more identified by their movie stars like James Dean or Joan Crawford or by their genres like Westerns or crime films than by him as, as, a, as an author. I mean, that reputation came, came much later. Um, but in doing some of the historical research that I've been doing for my monograph, um, I found that it, within the industry, he was very much seen as this kind of practical stylist. So people weren't really latching on to the, the so-called personal vision that oh, tourist critics would latch on to in the, in the 70s in, in English language criticism. Um, but they did see him as part of this economy wave of um, efficient workmanlike directors who were able to make interesting genre films on modest budgets uh, that, that did, you know, fair business um, and, and did, you know, fairly well with critics. So, you know, he was somebody who was sought after for being able to do things, innovative things that, that didn't really declare themselves, but, uh, you know, staying within a, a reasonable budget. So, for example, that famous celebrated opening shot of They Live by Night, which is Ray's first film, which is shot from a helicopter, and it's supposedly the first action sequence that's uh, shot with a helicopter, although now we see this all the time, you know, back in 1947, 48, when that film was first made, that was, that was a, a you know a pretty bold move. Nobody else was doing that, and people have read Ray's signature style, personal vision into that opening credit sequence. But at the time, it was um, a really good way of of shooting efficiently and economically. He seemed once he did start directing, it seemed like he burned so bright and so quickly. I mean, it seems like the majority of his films were released within like a what 12 13 year period and then nothing for so many years what kind of happened to him after 55 days at peking i don't think he had the same uh, freedom uh, that he that he was able to sort of carve out for himself at the margins of the studio system in the 50s at early 60s the studios had sort of crumbled and nicholas ray didn't really have a place anymore in american film 
Um, he had also, you know, burned a few bridges. There, there are stories of him, you know, showing up on the set of a film called uh, uh, Across the Everglades, um, you know, very drunk and, and trashing his car into the set. And whether or not these stories are mythological, but the, the, he had kind of crafted this reputation as being something of, of a wild guy towards the end of the 50s. And, and so I think that also had a, something to do with it. Um, but I, I think also that I, when Nicholas Ray became aware in the early 60s that there was this group of French critics, you know, Francois Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard, Eric Romer, who took films very seriously and considered him an auteur, I think he sort of enjoyed, you know, going to Europe and being part of that scene. I, I, part of me b- believes he, he didn't really mind leaving the American studio system. I think he, he enjoyed Europe, even though he wasn't able to, to produce, you know, film the way he was before at the same rate. I think he did sort of enjoy that, that celebrity status that, that he had achieved in France and other parts of Europe. So, but yeah, after nine, after 55 days at Peking, it all changes. When it comes to Lonely Places, Dangerous Ground, he directed such a wide variety of films. Did you decide that you're going to try to pick essays that were, or solicit or choose essays that were trying to cover that wide ground? Or how did you kind of go about that? Because he was all over the map when it came to all the genres that he was involved in, the flying leathernecks and the biblical epics and just really in then, of course, his classic film noir. Yeah, I I, I think, you know, one of the things that was so great about doing this collection um, and, you know, Murray Pomerantz, as Steve mentioned, was kind of like our dream editor. You know, he gave us so much freedom to to really, you know, do what we what we thought would, would work best for the collection. And, and he was open to, I don't know, slightly more experimental approaches um, than we might, you know, have had uh, working with a different outfit. And one of the things that we were able to do is um, really try to let the films speak for themselves. So we didn't really want to go into the collection with any kind of agenda. Steve and myself and and, um, and Murray as well uh, really admire Ray. Um, so we're all cinephiles. We all love Ray. Um, and we wanted to kind of honor the films by, you know, kind of letting the, the critical writing come from the films rather than going into the collection with a certain theoretical agenda that we sort of force the films to conform to or force the films to fit to our theoretical framework. We wanted to resist that. So, so the writing is is very much in film criticism, so close textual readings of the films, um, often in a sort of auteurist nature. Um, and so historical context, so industry research, historical poetics, um, cultural contexts, things like that. We hoped to cover most of the canonical films, most of the major films that people would likely expect to find in, a, in an anthology on Ray. And, and, you know, we hope this book could be used in a classroom environment. You know, if one was to teach a class on Ray, you would show Rebel Without a Cause. You would show In a Lonely Place, John Mankato. Um, these films. So we wanted to make sure those were covered. Um, but we also wanted to make sure that, you know, we didn't marginalize the films that haven't received a lot of critical or scholarly attention. So, you know, we asked Alex Doty to write on A Woman's Secret and Born to be Bad, which are two of Ray's women's films um, that he made uh, at RIO that 
for a long time have been very maligned. And one of the great things that I think Alex does in that essay is um, tries to kind of recuperate them through a, a, a queer reading strategy. So, you know, those films are covered. We have Tony Williams, who wrote a great essay on Flying Leathernecks, which is also a film that, you know, a lot of critics kind of dismiss as a movie that Ray had to make, you know, and, and it's this kind of conservative propaganda film. This, you know, it's really more Howard Hughes' film or John Wayne's film than Nicholas Ray's film. Um, but uh, Tony talks about the use of color in, in Flying Leathernecks that's kind of gone under the radar. So we tried to both cover the old favorites, but also uh, as many of the films as we could that perhaps haven't gotten their due or, you know, haven't been appreciated in ways that are, are subtle or, or interesting or, I don't know, sort of adventurous ways of looking at film. So it's it's a very heterogeneous collection of essays and approaches, and we try not to privilege one approach over another. Um, so it's really just sort of driven by um, the themselves. When it comes to the whole auteur look at Ray, what were kind of the themes? What were the things that he was concerned about and that he was exploring via film? I think one of the things he was very interested in was depicting and imagining different kinds of lifestyles. I think you actually see this as early as, you know, the very first shot of They Live by Night, where you see this image of, of the movie couple, which, of course, is a very you know, common thing we see in Hollywood movies of all eras is the, the heterosexual couple. But it's a fascinating first shot because Farley Granger and Kathy O'Donnell, they're sort of like in this abstract space, sort of separated from the story world. Um, the, the, the titles on the screen tell us they were not you know, meant for this world that they were born into. It's a very poetic image. And I think throughout his career, Ray was really interested in telling stories about people who were trying to live differently, to live sort of alternative lives. And of course, you see this, you see the struggle for this in Rubble Without a Cause, his most famous film. But also see it in a film that, that, that Will writes about in the book, Bigger Than Life, where the James Mason character in that film, sort of this uh, uh, tortured intellectual who's lived life in a you know, suburban landscape that he can't stand. And you, you feel the, the, the need, the desire inside of him for something other than what he had. And I think throughout his career, whether it's Johnny Guitar or The Lusty Men or you know, a relatively obscure film like Born to be Bad, have this sort of uh, hard-drinking writer played by Robert Ryan, who's kind of, a, in a way, a, re- a, a rebel, or On Dangerous Ground, and film Robert Ryan. You see these these depictions of these characters and these couples and, and these sometimes threesomes, like in Rebel Without a Cause, because that's a story really about a trio of characters um, who are just trying to do things differently, to, to sort of craft an alternative way of living. And I think f- what makes Nicholas Ray so fascinating in that regard is that he was doing this in the 1950s, which was in some ways a very conformist decade. And he was sort of a, a, a ahead of his time, I think, uh, in that respect. Would you agree with that, Will? Yeah, I, I think that's that's spot on what, what Steve just said. Uh, I think um, a lot of critics have written about Ray as uh, the greatest 50s director who was really making films about the 60s. So in some ways, uh, We Can't Go Home Again, which is about the waning years of the counterculture and was filmed in the early 70s is kind of the fullest realization of what he was doing with movies like Rebel Without a Cause and Johnny Guitar um, and um, In a Lonely Place, which is 
really a movie about the limitations of Hollywood and the kind of repressive, restrictive environment of King in Hollywood uh, during the HUAC period, uh, during the fall of the studio system. So as much as his films are wonderful period pieces of the 50s, and I think, you know, other than maybe Douglas Sirk and Vincent Minnelli, I, I can't think of... Uh, a director who kind of encapsulated both um, the the style of, of classical Hollywood in the 50s and also the kind of cultural concerns. But yet at the same time, um, there's something that um, is surging forth in Ray's films um, that, you know, these, these gestures towards the experimental, the alternative, which is very much what these French critics, these tourist critics that uh, were the first to celebrate him, that's what they were latching on to. Um, so I, I, I definitely think that that's, that that's right. I wanted to focus really quick on In a Lonely Place. This was only his fifth motion picture, as far as I can tell. And it's a one of the most scathing portrayals of Hollywood that is out there ever, period. Was he already disillusioned at this point, or was there something else that was going on that kind of led to the, the venom of this film? I think the film was kind of the result of a lot of different things. Um, it's based on a Dorothy Hughes novel called In a Lonely Place, which is um, this pulp thriller about um, a war veteran who's strangling women in Los Angeles, but it has nothing to do with um, working in the movie industry. So much of the stuff that we get in the movie that is best remembered today, like it's meta commentary on cinema, on Hollywood cinema, um, was a result of, of Ray and Bart and screenwriters. I think it's echoing what was happening at the time with feelings of paranoia regarding HUAC. And that was a very dark time in Hollywood. Um, people were losing their jobs. People were getting blacklisted, having to move to Europe. People were afraid of, of their futures and their careers in the industry. I think that in some ways, In a Lonely Place is as much about Bogart as it is about Ray and the kind of wild man that, that Bogart was. And, and the film, I think, is, is kind of a critical interrogation of his star persona that was very much changing in the 1950s. And talk about that later on if you want to. But I do think that it was a personal film for Ray. I mean, he has certainly said that he considers this a deeply personal film. I think it's it's registering his feelings of being hemmed in by Hollywood, having to answer to producers, having to answer to studio demands, not really getting the recognition that he may have felt he deserved in his home country at the time. Um, but the, the movie co-stars Gloria Graham, and a lot of critics, I think rightfully so, have read the film as a reflection of Ray's own deteriorating marriage to Gloria Graham. So I think that the movie is is very much a personal film for Ray. I think it's one of most personal films, uh, but I think it's it's for a lot of reasons that it is. I think there's more to say maybe about the Bogart star persona, but I, I don't necessarily want to take us too off track. So because um, I, I, if you look at some of Bogart's films in the '40s, um, you know, To Have and Have Not, the films with Lauren Bacall, he 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 has, and of course Casablanca. It's this very sort of romanticized. Bogart. It's the Bogart everyone thinks of when they say Humphrey Bogart. They think of this sort of uh, uh, romantic figure, which was a fairly uh, you know recent development in Bogart's career. Because in the 1930s, he for the most part was just a tough guy and a fairly limited actor in some ways. The, there's, there's actually an anecdote that the actress uh, Louise Brooks uh, shares in her book um, Lulu in Hollywood, where she talks about how Bogart really didn't become 
a cinematic actor until he made The Petrified Forest with Leslie Howard in 1936. And this is several years into his career, uh, but he's still playing a tough guy in the film. It's not really until you get to a film like High Sierra in 1941 or Casablanca in 1942 that he starts to play a more sympathetic figure. And so, and by the time you get to 1950, you have this really romantic image of Humphrey Bogart that has been established. And Nicholas Ray is sort of pulling the rug out from under that and sort of showing you, in some ways, the real Bogart, the Bogart that Lauren Bacall writes about in her autobiography, the one who would, you know, go out drinking and get into these brawls in, in nightclubs. And, 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 you know, I think Nicholas Ray was, he was tapping into his, his own personal life. But I think there's there's certainly a self-reflexive uh, aspect uh, or reflection of the real life Humphrey Bogart in in a lonely place too, which is one of just many one of the many reasons why it's such a compelling film. I know that a few years ago it wasn't always so easy to find the films of Nicholas Ray. Is everything of his now available? Unfortunately, no, <laughs> and it's 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 uh, it's a struggle. I. I always complain that my favorite Nicholas Ray movie is still not available on DVD. The Lusty Men with Robert Mitchum and Susan Hayward, uh, which I, I adore that film. I cannot understand why it is not available on DVD. Uh, and there are others, too, that are, that are still hard to see. Movies like uh, Hot Blood from 1957, is it? Uh, which has never been released on DVD in this country. Actually, the, the Warner Archive um, just out hot blood within the last year or two. Oh, they did okay yeah it, it's part of their um made to uh, their uh, dvd on demand service i don't know how many people are familiar with warner archive it's a great resource for people who collect hollywood films and um they've actually put out uh, a number of ray's hardest to find films that thankfully now uh we can find through through the warner archive so i mean they're not movies that you can just sort of walk into best buy and pick up but uh, there is the uh the DVDR service um, that uh, that they provide. So Hot Blood is one of their titles. Uh, Party Girl, Knock on Any Door, and both of the women's pictures: Born to Be Bad and A Woman's Secret. I think there are like some like The Savage Innocence. You you can get it on a I think a Region Two disc from Masters of Cinema. If you have an old right. Region DVD or Blu-ray player, you can. There are certain uh, I think a couple of titles. I, the Savage Innocence being one of them. But 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 that one is also hard to see. Again, you can't. Yeah, you can't walk in to a you know a best buy and buy it either so but i didn't know hot blood was out that's cool. <laughs> yeah it looks it looked beautiful too great yeah he definitely had a very great style i mean I was, of course, first familiar with his work through Rebel Without a Cause, seeing that in high school, and just the the use of color and the cinemascope and everything. That movie just, you know, had such a life of its own, even without the tremendous acting that goes on in it. It just is such a a, a, a frenetic film. I, I love the way that it looks. Yeah, I, I think that you know that's probably the film that. Um, most people know Ray for even today. I mean, my undergraduates, when I, when they asked me, you know, what was I, when I was working on my PhD and my undergraduates would ask me, what, what am I writing my dissertation on? And I would say Nicholas Ray. And most of them wouldn't know who I was talking about. But then as soon as I would say Rebel Without a Cause, almost all of them know that film. Um, and, you know, I, I actually think that even though it's so iconic, both among Ray aficionados and 
um, you know, just sort of general movie fans. I actually think it gives you a really good sense of what you can expect from Ray. I, I don't, you know, it's not one of those films that I, I think cinephiles bemoan like, oh, if only, you know, people knew this other film, you know, that's what you really have to see if you want to get into this director. I, I think Rebel Without a Cause is a great kind of gateway film into into Nicholas Ray, both thematically, but also stylistically. I think it's a it's a visually stunning movie. And, and I have seen that movie several, several times. And every time I see it, I'm always knocked out by it just aesthetically. It's the gateway drug. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's the film. Whenever, I, yeah, whenever I want to show a Nicholas Ray movie to my undergrads, that's the one I go to first, and they respond to it too. They res- and they respond to, to the aesthetics. They, you know, especially for students who have already you know taken a couple of film classes and know something about mise en scène and, and style. They they respond to it on that level. In addition, of course, to responding to the you know the themes of the film, which I think still speak to uh, to, to people today. That breathtaking visual style especially his use of color you see it in so many films the use of red in a movie like party girl is really mm-hmm. unbelievable but of course i love his black and white cinematography too i mean i i just they live by night the the cinematography in that film is just absolutely stunning and it's i think it's an amazing first film just in terms of style how assured it was already for a first film i mean outside of citizen kane i really i can't think of a better first film uh and and so i think yeah i think that was one of the consistent things with ray is that even when the project wasn't necessarily something he was terribly excited about like something you know like hot blood which i don't think he was terribly pleased with the way that turned out you still see that vibrant aesthetics that that great style and it's always captivating you know i'm i'm a i'm an absolute sucker for uh technicolor cinema films um but uh, i i would have to say that they live by night is probably my favorite nicholas ray film steve mentioned that the lusty men is his favorite if i had to pick you know a, a movie to be kind of you know shot off into outer space to be preserved for eternity among the nicholas ray films i i it would be a, a difficult choice but i i think they live by night is is my favorite and very similar too to rebel i mean it's one of those films you can show an undergraduate classroom because it's about these sort of youthful rebels who kind of strike out on their own. I, th- I think he was already dealing with that theme in, ni- in, the, in the late 1940s. And so it, that's another film that I think has aged very well. And audiences today, when, when they become aware of it, it's not quite as popular as Rebel Without a Cause. And so it takes a little bit of effort to, to get students to, to want to watch it. But when they do sit down and watch it, I think they identify with with those characters and with, with just the feeling of the film. wanted to ask a little bit about the later days of his career. Do either of you guys, are you familiar with exactly how he and Vim Vendors kind of got together? Vim Vendors was a longtime admirer of Ray's films, um, and in, in particular, his westerns. He writes about the lusty men. Um, if you've read some of the collected essays of Vim Vendors, some of his film criticism, you know, he, he raves about the lusty men. So much like Godard, um, uh, vendors as as one of the figureheads of the new German cinema movement um, came to Ray as a, a cinephile first, um, a, a viewer, a lover of film. Um, and then he cast Ray uh, in a, a small part in a movie called The American Friend, which um, is, is a really extraordinary movie in its own right, apart from its connection to Ray. I think it's, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing movie. It, Ray is only on screen in, in a couple of scenes, but they're among the most memorable scenes in the movie, and he plays an art forger. Um, and this is a, a film that's based on um, Patricia Highsmith's 
Ripley series, Ripley's game specifically, but it borrows from a couple of the other books. And so Ray plays this kind of shadowy Dr. Mabuse type figure, kind of hovers over the entire film, even when he's not on screen. And and that, I think, did a lot to bolster Ray's reputation in the 70s, apart from his teaching and his own kind of public celebrity that he was fashioning at that time. The fact that he had this endorsement from people like Godard and people like vendors who were very hip at that time that kind of gave his older films a new lease uh, in the in the 1990s and and they were rediscovered by a whole new generation of cinephiles then a few years after the american friend came out uh, vendors worked with ray again much more closely in a film called lightning over water which is this very experimental documentary and that's something that you should put in quotes, quote, documentary, unquote, because it kind of plays with documentary as a form. Um, and it's very self-reflexive, very creative um, and autobiographical. And it's kind of hard to, to describe in just a couple of sentences, but but basically it's about Ray's uh, final days as he was battling cancer at the time. So Ray plays himself in the film. Vendors plays himself in the film. But the film also kind of slips in and out of of fiction and and fact. And that was uh, sort of officially Ray's final film. And Vendors kind of bequeathed it to Ray. How's the reception for the book been? I think mostly positive. I have yet to read any uh, reviews of, of the book because the academic world is so slow. <laughs> and I think it's, it's just going to take a while. It's going to take a while for the book to get out there. And, and I, I think for people to read it, I think in the next few months I would expect to see some reviews, but I've spoken to friends and, and colleagues who have read the, it's been nothing but positive so far. And it, it was, re- I learned a lot. Yeah. Right now it's, it's, kind of an expensive book. It's only in hardcover. Um, if you go to the SUNY Press website, I think it says something like 80 or $90, which is actually not uncommon for a hardcover academic book from a university press. So I think right now it's only gotten out to libraries and universities. Um, and the, the people that I've kind of talked to casually have been very kind um, in their assessments. So I, I hope it does well. I mean, it's it, I'm really proud of it. And I can't wait to, to talk to more people about it once um, it's gone down in price. It'll it'll be uh, sort of available in the in the retail markets um, and, and price to own uh, next year. I think probably by January 2015, it should be in paperback. We're back. Thanks to Mr. McGilligan, Mr. Scheibel, and Mr. Rybin for taking the time to talk to us about Nicholas Ray. You can hear the first part of our interview with Mr. McGilligan on our episode about the big heat from two weeks ago. We'll have links over to where you can buy those Nicholas Ray books over at our website, projection-booth.com. This week, we're talking about Nicholas Ray's In a Lonely Place with Jared Case. 
So we began in a lonely place with Mildred's very loose telling of a story, and she really could have been telling Dick's story of Dorothy B. Hughes's book, and he might have come up with the movie in a lonely place. So, Jared, how do you feel that uh, Dorothy B. Hughes's book compares to Ray's film? Uh, well, I hadn't read the book uh, before we were preparing for the podcast, and I was pleasantly surprised, pleasantly shocked at how different it was. It's very much a serial killer book. You get from the start that Dixon Steele is a bad guy, a really bad guy, and we get fairly detailed ramblings about uh, how he stalks his prey and how he likes to take chances with being found out. So how how do I feel about it? Uh, I, I was very happy to read it in the knowing that in 1947 or whenever it was published that this sort of thing was out there. The the fact that, as we talked about a little bit at the beginning of the show, you can't adapt this type of book into a film at that period of time. So the changes that they made uh, are really interesting if you go one by one. For instance, uh, Dix was not a writer in the book. Well, he was trying to be a writer. So that was a sort of a connection. One of his stories was that he went to the West Coast to write a book because so many people uh, that had come back from the war were doing that. But really, he was just milking money from his uncle that entire time, and he just wanted to live the good life out in L.A. The choice to make him not only a writer but a screenwriter in the film is very interesting in talking about Nicholas Ray exploring the idea of – being a writer, being a creator, and writing stories versus writing murder. So if we can look at the two side by side, how similar are they one to the other? Yeah, he is very into stalking these women. I mean, we begin the novel with this uh, fog that has kind of come in and him hanging out in the fog and just kind of enjoying the way that it is cool and moist on his skin. And I love the way that Hughes describes everything that's going on and just the she does a really great job when it comes to describing colors and when she comes to describing sounds. And Dixon does not like a lot of noise at all. And there's this whole thing of him just chafing under any sort of loud noise and the ritual that he has when it comes to shaving his face. And he uses this electric razor and he hates the sound of it. But the reason why he uses it is because he might cut himself up if he were to use a straight razor, like was the normal practice back then, or a safety razor, because his hands shake. And he didn't want to have any sort of distinguished marks or cuts on himself because he enjoys the fact that he looks like everyone else. He is the most normal person out there. He doesn't want to have a mustache because that would stand out in a crowd. He just wants to fit in. He just wants to be this guy. I was really reminded a lot of uh, Ripley while I was reading this because he just wants to manipulate everyone around him and get away with stuff. And for me, there's this whole um, Mel is in the book, but Mel is a completely different character. Obviously, Mel is not his agent. Dix doesn't have an agent. Dix, the only thing Dix writes in the book 
is a letter to his uncle asking for money, this uncle that isn't in the film. Mel is this missing character in the book. Mel is the guy who Dixon kind of glommed onto when they were going to school together, and he was able to kind of help Mel get the girls and get the drinks and do all this kind of stuff. And eventually, Dixon kind of ended up in that position of power, and he was the one that Mel was kind of serving. And then when he comes back to, or when he goes out to LA and runs into Mel, he never comes out and says it. He denies it all the way up until the end, but he murders Mel and basically takes his place. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to me that, you know, he uses this opportunity. He's kind of the Dickie Greenleaf of the, the story to me. And yeah, it's so interesting to see how this book ended up translating into this movie and they're just so completely different in so many different ways you've got the character names are there and you've got some of the attitudes and things are there but so much of it is just completely different and so it's great to me that in the movie there's so many times where it's like oh, you know, we told you to just stick to the book <laughs> you know <laughs> like stick to the book and this will be a success and they go so off book that it's it it is kind of the idea of Dixon adapting this thing that he just kind of heard from this hatchet girl rather than actually reading it himself. This might have been the movie in a lonely place might have been a story that the hatchet girl told to the screenwriter and just kind of said, Oh, so there's this guy, Dixon Steele, and he's a writer and he wants to and just completely t- take that and go because it is just, you know, night and day compared to. But to me, I think both of them stand up so well. I mean, the the movie in a lonely place and the book in a lonely place are two great, very distinct works of art to me. It's interesting that you bring up Patricia Highsmith and and the similarities between her and Dorothy B. Hughes, at least in these novels, because who else but but women in the forties and fifties could write these manipulative men? Right? It's the the men were writing the the tough guys, the hard boiled guys, the 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 guys that handled things with their fists. Whereas the women were writing about these men who did things behind the scenes. They manipulated. They were charming. They uh, got away with things because you know, nobody would suspect them. It's that's a really interesting comparison. Dix was flawed from the beginning. Dix, um, we never really get like his origin story, which I kind of like. You know, we get a little bit that he grew up kind of under the thumb of this uncle. So we don't get, you know, my mother beat me and made me dress in women's clothes or any of this kind of Henry portrait of a serial killer kind of origin stuff or, you know, like a James Elroy kind of thing where it all goes back to the childhood mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. It's much more of a mystery that we don't know why Dix is this way. I also like that Hughes doesn't show us the murders, that they all take place outside of the story. You know, we kind of, it's kind of like in A Lonely Place, the film, where it's Dix and Mildred together, and then the next scene, you don't see her anymore. Mm-hmm. And then you get, but you get the papers screaming about this, you know, missing girl or this murdered girl. So I kind of appreciate that too. But the, um, the thing that I, I really like that Hughes is doing is this whole, 
idea of um, Dix was flawed from the beginning, but he goes off to war and he's able to kind of explore himself when he's in the war. This whole idea of him really enjoying what he was doing in World War II. It kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, some of Charles Williford's writing mm-hmm. when he talks about the guys who would go off to, to World War II or to all the, these other wars and kind of got a taste for killing. And Dix doesn't necessarily get a taste for killing over there. He does begin, um, as far as we know, his killing while he's in the war, while he's over in in England. Mm -hmm. But there were guys who really kind of got off on this whole idea of the power and everything that they had when they were able to go over there. And that's kind of the, the, the thing that people don't talk about are those guys who went over, got to murder people, got to kill them in war, which is, you know, all's fair, right? But really kind of got a taste for it. Wow, this is pretty neat that I can shoot somebody and get away with it. They come back to the United States. It's a little bit of a different story. And I really think that Dix was able to kind of explore himself in the war, come back over, and he is definitely a very wounded GI well, I, I think that's a key to film noir, and one of the reasons that it happened when it did was because you know we had these people coming back from the war that were like us, uh, but they got a taste of of this power of this you know the, taking someone's life. It's a very powerful thing, as I understand. I haven't done it myself, but um, that's this is what the stories are dealing with, and. The fact that we identified with these people before they left, but they're different when they come back, is how different are we from these people, right? If they can find themselves being murderers, what about us? And it's interesting the dichotomy between the people that were affected by the war and the people that weren't affected by the war. Because we have Brub in the book, who's still a detective, or he was just made detective, and um, – He's still friends with Dix, but I think in the book, it wasn't this father-son commanding officer uh, sort of relationship. I thought they were both just in the, the squad together. But there's this delineation between Brub, who's a cop and he's straight-laced, and he has he's gone back to life and it's pretty okay. Whereas Dix came back changed, and as you said, he started his murdering spree in England, as far as the book tells us. The difference in ideology is reflected in a passage in the book that I wrote down. It's Dix talking about Brub. So we know that Dix is a killer, and Dix knows that he's a killer, and he's got very specific reasons. But he's talking about the way that Brub sees it. And the quote is, it would never occur to him, that's talking about Brub, that any reason other than insanity could make the man a killer. It took imagination to think of a man, sane as you or I, who killed so Dix definitely has the reasons. He knows that he's not crazy. He just has this desire. But Brub is the one that's saying anybody who kills is just nuts. So there's this delineation between understanding and not understanding that's reflected in the relationship between Brub and Dix. Yeah, and I love the way that Hughes is using this. It's it's you know a lot of times people talk about third person narration, and it's this kind of eye of God narration. Mm-hmm. This is third person narration, but this is more like the devil that sits on 
Dix's shoulder. Like it's Absolutely. that close of a third person. And just we know what he's thinking. We know what he's thinking that other people are thinking. But it's so told through his perspective, even though it is through this third person. And we get that paranoia. You know, we just talked about this last week when it came to Detour. And that paranoia of what uh, the main character is experiencing, and it's so much the same when it comes to the way that Dix is figuring out what other people are thinking, the way that he kind of gets a bead on Sylvia, who uh, immediately has this dislike for him, and you know he's exploring why is that, and just playing these games throughout the entire book of trying to make people like him, and yet he is uh, he keeps describing himself as the hunter you know there's the hunter and the hunted and well actually i guess he's kind of the hunted and brub is the hunter Mm -hmm. but yet he uh really kind of explores that too and he's the hunter of these women that are out there and just him stalking these people down and everything and and uh kind of remembering what it was like to uh to kill uh this woman that he loved in England, Brucey, who's kind of uh, almost like this Laurel character where she made everything right. And now he's obsessed with Laurel in the book and she's the one to him that is going to make everything all right. But you know, kind of in your heart of hearts, when you're reading this, there's going to be something that triggers him again, even when he finds this quote unquote perfect woman you know that he's you know he's on the cyclical behavior he murders these women at least once a month and you know at one point she's going to be one of the victims somewhere down the line yeah dix is on every page of this book you don't get another viewpoint and that's it's not a long book it's a little over 200 pages but he, you know that's the fact that you never get a break from dix puts you in that mind frame and it's it's you don't get to look away there's no there's nothing else going on in this world except for what's happening in dix's head and i think that's part of what really brings you in because you are focused on this guy and you you only see things through his eyes and and what he's thinking it's kind of the same when it comes to In a Lonely Place, the film. I mean, we stay with Humphrey Bogart through almost all of it, though there are scenes where he's not involved. We talked about the masseuse scene earlier, and there are other scenes here and there. Where Laurel's at the police station. What are these kind of other scenes and everything? And apparently there were more that were out there before. There were other details that we had that kind of pointed more to Dick's innocence, and they kind of quickly or smartly remove those. We had more of Mildred's boyfriend, some shots of uh, him looking at different things and just kind of being more of a story as it is. I think there's one scene that he's in and that's it. So I think they were pretty smart to kind of take those out that they do kind of make Dix look like he is the killer. And I thought that was very smart. And then some of the other changes that went on was apparently in the book, Dix is a murderer, and we get to read at least at least what three different murders or three different occasions, and then he talks about how he's killed you know so many people, mm-hmm. and there are so many people that the cops don't even know about that he has killed. Kind of like that, uh, he reminded me a little bit of Ted Bundy, where it's like you know there'll be people and showing up here and there, and you know I've killed all these people, but in the adaptation, uh, apparently it went with. Um, 
the proposal was that Dix would kill two people. And then in the final screenplay, it was that he would kill Laurel. And there was the original ending of it where he actually does choke Laurel to death. Mm -hmm. And then they went back and reshot it so that he doesn't kill uh, her. So he went from dozens in the book to two in the proposal to one in the screenplay to none in the finished film. But yet I think that intention still kind of flows all the way through. Yeah, I think that probably would have made the film fit even more squarely in the noir pantheon if he had killed Laurel because he was suspected of being a killer. And just that forced persona which is put on him changes him internally to the to the point where he becomes what he's suspected of being and that's a very noir thing oh yeah everybody around you is accusing you of murder you haven't done it but finally you say ah the hell with it i'll yeah everybody thinks i'm a murderer i might as well go ahead exactly there are some other really good Hughes books out there. She was a mystery writer for quite a few years, and um, I have to recommend uh, Ride the Pink Horse. Oh, yeah. Hopefully one of these days we'll talk about that on the show, but that is a great one as well. It's hard to come by, too. The movie is definitely still hard to come by, which is kind of a shame. You know, I was hoping it would be kind of snuck out on one of these you know, DVD box sets at some point or other. I have no idea what the situation was in terms of it not coming out, but uh, I've seen 35 print and I like it quite a bit. Uh, It's a 1947 film. In my opinion, the 1947 was the peak of noir, so it fits right in with that. So noir is still kind of going on. You know, neo-noir is still a fact with us. And one of those neo-noirs is a place called The Last Lonely Place. And when I first read about this film, I was thinking, oh, it's a sequel of sorts to In a Lonely Place. But fortunately, it is not a sequel (laughs) to In a Lonely Place, though it is made with cooperation from the Humphrey Bogart estate. So I had the pleasure of talking to Steve Anderson, the director of The Last Lonely Place. So let's go ahead and play that interview. I am Steve Anderson. I'm a filmmaker, uh, primarily a writer, director, producer, and I run currently Santana Films, which is a reboot of Humphrey Bogart's production company that he started right around 1947 and we have in the past year or so rebooted it and we have two new features already done when you say we who who else is involved here well uh the executive producers the the estate of humphrey bogart runs it and that is stephen bogart who's the son of humphrey bogart and warren bacall uh he's involved uh to a certain degree and then robert de Klerk, who is stephen's business partner um, is also involved in sort of more in the day-to-day you know, running sort of business and the filmmaking aspect of it. They have a number of business businesses associated with the estate. They tend to do things in a much more classy way as far as licensing goes. I mean, there's some estates, Marilyn Monroe or, or other ones that kind of license out to almost everything. You know, you'll see plates and on Hollywood Boulevard or stuff. And the Bogart estate really kind of wants to keep the legacy alive in a you know classy way, good way, and do good businesses. And so we had a really good experience with our first film, which was this last lonely place, which is out now. And we decided because of that, hey, let's reboot the company and continue to make you know low budget thrillers, film noirs, 
kind of films that uh, if Bogey was still around today that he might be involved with. How did you get into the business? I've been in the business for a while now. I, even back in college, I kind of wanted to be in film and I, I started writing screenplays, but it really kind of kicked into gear when I moved out to Los Angeles here in 1989. So I've been out here quite a while now and it took 10 years, but I kind of kept at it, kept writing scripts and taking meetings and trying to put projects together. And I eventually decided at one point it was I was sort of inspired actually back by by Steven Soderbergh when he did Sex Lies and Videotape and saw that you could make really cool small movies and almost kind of do it yourself and I sat down and I wrote a script called The Big Empty and uh, cut to a year or so later it, it was a film that I had written that I knew I could do myself for next to nothing but it got into the hands of John Favreau, and uh, next thing I knew, we were making it at a budget of about $2 million at John Favreau, Daryl Hannah, Kelsey Grammer. I could go on and on, great names. And uh, from then on, I've been able, for the most part, to support myself uh, in the entertainment business, always as, a, as an independent filmmaker. And times are tough every once in a while, but uh, it's something I really enjoy doing. Now, there is a uh, Stephen Anderson who's thanked at the end of Napoleon Dynamite. Is that you? It is me. I'm, people ask about that, and I'm actually proud about it. The story is probably not as exciting as uh, just seeing my name there, but a friend of mine, Jory Weitz, was the uh, one of the executive producers, and at the time, I had a small office on the Fox lot, 20th Century Fox lot here, that I had been editing in. And we'd sort of finished with our project, and I used it basically just as sort of an office. It was fun to go to the, the lot every day, even though I wasn't really you know, working there or associated with Fox. And he called me and said, hey, I've got these kind of crazy guys you know, in town. They're, they're, they're casting this really small movie called Napoleon Dynamite. We need a place to hold some casting sessions. And I said, well, no problem. You can do it here. So for about a week or two weeks, they kind of used that office to do some of the casting sessions for the film, and um, that's how I ended up. I asked Jory later, I said, hey, you know, if I had asked for maybe a point or two just to, you know, or a credit, he said, oh, they probably would have given it to you then. So my life might have changed in that moment had I just asked for one point on Napoleon Dynamite. So how did The Last Lonely Place kind of come to be? The Last Lonely Place, it's, uh, it's an independent feature. Um we shot it about two years ago now, and it's available now. I'll tell you more about that and you know how people can watch it. But it, it was a little of a lesson being relearned. I uh, had another script that was called The White Orchid, that uh, really good script, and it was in some production companies around town. One in specifically that really liked it and wanted to do it, but they weren't aggressive really. They said, "Yeah, you know, we'll, we want to do this. We're going to get to it in a few months." and a few months turned to a few months longer, but because they're such a respected company, we kind of left the script there. And I went to my other producers involved and said, look, let's leave that script there with them because it's a good company, but I'm going to go out and write a super small, low-budget script that I know I can do myself because I want to actually make a movie this summer. I don't want to you know, sit and wait and do budgets and schedules and take meetings. I want to make a movie. So I sat down and wrote the scripts. I had an idea that there's a lot of, you know, ultra low budget films being made these days and, and a lot of good ones. And most of them have one location. You know, you'll go and it's primarily one location. It might be a farm, it might be a, a house or a hotel. And my idea is 
what if that one location was a taxi cab in Los Angeles? So about 75, 80% of the film takes place inside that cab. But of course, the cab ride takes a very specific drive around Los Angeles. And so we're able to sort of introduce Los Angeles as a character in the film as well. And it just makes the film, you know, feel like a much bigger film. We made the whole film for $125,000 and it's a pretty outstanding you know, looking film for that for that budget, for sure. How did the Bogart estate get involved with this? When I wrote the script and kind of tried to figure out how I was going to do it, I decided that I'd try Kickstarter. Now, this was a couple of years ago. Um, Kickstarter had been around, but it was it's not as ubiquitous as it is now with crowdfunding. So I thought, hey, I'm just going to try this and see how it works. I knew I had, you know, a, a, a I didn't have a big fan base, but I have a lot of friends, family, relatives that have always been supportive. So I went on Kickstarter uh, asking for $75,000 because that's what I thought I could make the film on. And during the campaign, it was about two weeks in, I had to fly back east um, for a few days. And while I was in the airport one night, I started tweeting. I mean, when you do crowdfunding campaign, you're just all over obnoxiously so social media. And I got really tired of please support my indie film kind of tweet. So I started tweeting film quotes, quotes from films that I could remember, but I would insert the word Kickstarter. So Jaws, we're going to need a bigger boat. I would say we're going to need a bigger Kickstarter. And I would just put the link. And one of those quotes was, I believe this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful Kickstarter. And probably tagged it with Bogart. And a couple of days later, I got an email from Robert DeClerc, who's uh, the managing director of the estate and said, Hey, you know, we saw your Kickstarter. We read the script. I had put the script online because I thought the script was really solid. And if people wanted to donate you know, money, they should be able to read the script. And they said, you know, we might want to be involved with this. Would you like to meet? And of course I said, yes. And a few days later met for coffee. And the next thing you knew, they had signed on as executive producers. It was, it was pretty amazing. I mean, I, you know, as, as a filmmaker, we spend, a large amount of our time just trying to figure out financing. How do you raise money? Where do you get money from? And it would have never occurred to me to go to the, the state of a you know, Hollywood icon to try to raise financing, but uh, but it worked out well. So we now have a second film already done. The title, was the title the last lonely place before this Bogart involvement, or was it changed because of that? No, it was always called that. I'm a huge noir fan. Always have been, always will be, hope to make more noir films in the future. In coming up with the title of the film, it was actually influenced more than uh, what you're alluding to is Bogart's film, In a Lonely Place, which is you know, very close to the title. I was actually more inspired by The Big Sleep, which I always thought was one of the best titles ever. It's a great metaphor for death, but it's a great, uh, intriguing title. So this last lonely place... Is it more akin to that? That the, the metaphor works. It works on many ways. If you see the film, it works on the character psyches. They're, you know, in general, lonely people. The film takes place in a cab ride around Los Angeles at night. Which, if you ever spent time here, you spend so much time in your car that you're pretty lonely. And then there's some death involved, I guess, in the film. And this last lonely place, you could say, is where we all end up. We're born alone and we die alone. So. Um, but they were, of course, intrigued with the title, even though our title alludes to a lonely place. The movie is completely different, uh, other than being noir. 
course. The movie kind of lives and dies by the performances of, of your three leads. How did you come to cast these folks? By the way, I'm a huge Xander Berkeley fan. Oh, yeah, Xander is amazing. Well, it's um, casting is always uh, challenging. I mean, when you write a script or when you, you know, decide you're going to make a film, uh, sometimes you have financing, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're trying to attract actors that will help you attract financing. In our case, the Kickstarter was uh, successful. We raised about 90000 We kind of went by the 75000 So we had the money and had some uh, two great casting directors involved, Wendy Weidman and Rebecca Mancherieri. They're well-known around town. They signed on. They had actually had signed on to the previous script, The White Orchid, that was the script that was in production companies around town. Um, and when I showed him this new one, they said, yes. Um, and, you know, as a filmmaker, director, you start out with a list of actors that you want to work with. And it always comes down to who's available, who's interested. You know, this film was particularly challenging because of the low budget nature of it. Um, we were doing SAG, I think, ultra low budget minimum. I mean, it was basically paying the actors $100 a day. So the first gatekeepers you have to get through are the managers and the agents because even though they might like the script, um, they're not going to be making any money on it. So the script often goes to the bottom of their pile. But the script really stood on its own. Uh, Reese Coiro, who plays uh, the lead character, Sam Taylor, was someone that I've always loved since Entourage. There's just something really compelling about him. He played the sort of crazy film director, Billy Walsh, on that, and he's so watchable as an actor. And he signed on first. Within a couple of weeks, um, we had talked to Carly Pope, who plays the, the sort of femme fatale in the, in the film. And shortly after that, she knew Xander Berkeley really well. They worked previous together, and she called me up and said, hey, you know, we should really get this to Xander. And I jumped at the chance because I've always been a huge fan of Xander as well. And within a couple of days, he signed on. There was a little bit of hem and hawing there with his schedule. He was actually up in Montreal when he read the scripts. But the second he read it, he wanted to do it. He actually did our film for next to nothing and kind of turned down a much bigger television show. And he, he's, he's said now since we've made it that he's, his favorite catchphrase is he's never enjoyed making a movie more but never made you know, less on a movie. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, he really had a great time. And the, the reason that I like it is the the film was really conceived from the very beginning to be a B movie in the best sense of that term. I mean, back in the day in Bogart's day, they made B movies and a lot of them were film noirs and they made, made them for lower budgets, um, not, you know, top line A-list talent. And as far as marquee value, of course, the great actors, but that's what this film was conceived of from the very beginning. So the ability that we had to work with these great actors that don't often get, you know, big lead roles in, in, in films, they do a lot of their journeyman work on television and or supporting roles, you know, to kind of give them, you know, seriously good roles for them to chew on was, was great. And, uh, we just had a great time shooting it. So it sounds like you had a pretty successful relationship with Santana films. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's an interesting journey. I mean, I, I could have never predicted, you know, from that one random tweet that I sent out, the Bogarts got involved. You know, we had a really great experience making this last lonely place. It was super low budget, you know, very small crew of 
you know, we averaged the crew was, you know, four or five people on any given night. Sometimes it would be a little bit more, but super small. You could only fit so many people into that cab. You know, we really fell in love with the movie. Uh, we went on, we, we raised um, some more money only about six months after we finished uh, principal on this last lonely place. And uh, we decided, hey, you know, we have this money. Let's go out. I had another script, of course, which was The White Orchid, which was the script that sort of started it all off that was in this, you know, at this production company. And they never actually optioned it. So we said, let's do it. And uh, we shot it uh, just about a year ago. Stars Olivia Thurlby, Jennifer Beals, and John Carroll Lynch. And it's, it's still noir, but it's a little bit more of a Hitchcock kind of flavored thriller. And it's shot up in Morrill Bay, California, Big Sur, and San Francisco. And uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful film. And we've just finished with that now. But um, but yeah, it's been been a great adventure. We decided because of the special nature of this last lonely place, in a sense, all the money was crowdfunded, so we didn't have typical investors that we decided that we would essentially release it ourselves. So we went back to the crowdfunding aspect. Uh, we decided to use Indiegogo because I had a very good contact there um, who was very enthusiastic about the project and being involved. And we just ran a pre-release campaign. We're releasing it ourselves where we raised close to $25,000 in a month um, for people that wanted to see the film early. They could go to Indiegogo and along with packages or various perks. There's some great stuff that the Bogart Estate had that Stephen Bogart had signed. And uh, just last week, we're now available on our website, which is um, www.thislastlonelyplace.com. And uh, people can go there. They can purchase the film. It's DRM-free. It's available worldwide. They can buy just the film. We have commentary tracks there and other special features that are going to be added soon. So it's uh, it's really been great. And we've gotten great critical response to the film as well. We got a great review from Leonard Malton, great uh, uh, small review from Lou Lemonick of the New York Post. It's been a really great ride. Yeah, you've been in the business. Your first film came out, what, uh, 2003? Yep. So you've been in the business um, solidly for, what, is that uh, 12 years, 11 years now? Mm -hmm. How have you kind of seen things change for you in terms of filmmaking over that time? Well, I, I was just talking to somebody about this today, is that it's changed quite a bit. I mean, the ability to make a film now, the actual production of the film has just gotten so much easier, of course, with the advent of smaller cameras, computer programs. I We shot the entire film, This Last Lonely Place, on a Canon 5D, very small little uh, basically consumer-type camera. I edited it here in my place in Santa Monica in California. didn't have to, you know, go to an edit facility. I just downloaded, you know, Premiere Pro on my, on my system and, and went at it. We did most of the color timing here. So all the technical aspects of getting a film done, plus it helps that over the years I've just taught myself all these different programs and, and editing and, and producing. So I'm a bit of, bit of a jack-of-all-trades, you know, in order to keep costs down. The most challenging part right now is because of that, there's so many good films being made that there's just, you know, it's hard to figure out how to get people to see a film. You know, we do have sort of the Bogart crowd behind us. They've got over 300,000 fans on Facebook, for example, for the Bogart Estate page. And they have been supportive of, of us. But, um, 
it's a crowded marketplace, and to try to find out how to stand out, um, how to get people to see the film. If you had told me, you know, 10 or 12 years ago that, you know, in 10 years you're going to be making really you know, good, watchable film, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have known what to say. I mean, back then it was a very distinct distribution chain. You know, it went to DVD, and then it went to foreign sales, and it went to the theaters. And that had been like that for so long that in the past five or six years, you know, once the internet sped up and people were able to watch things on the internet, it's now the Wild West out there. And no one's quite figured it out yet. We're trying to do it ourselves, have a very specific location where people can go. But later this week, we'll be available on Vimeo. Uh, and we'll be reaching out in the next couple of months. We're trying to, what we're trying to do now is actually a little different than I've seen ever done before. We did this pre-release campaign using crowdfunding on Indiegogo for 30 days. Then we became available on our website. And over the next couple of months, we'll continue to expand. We'll go out to Vimeo. We'll end up at Amazon, on Hulu. And then probably somewhere around January, we'll come out on iTunes and a you know, bunch of the other platforms. So rather than doing it all at once, people are doing day-and-date day, day and date stuff because they think that helps. We kind of thought, hey, what if we actually release the film like over four months, and we always have something to talk about, you know, something new that's coming up, a new review. Uh, and, you know, I started, uh, I sort of restarted a blog that I did that, you know, that we could post media on. So, you know, that's really the challenge is, you know, how do you get people to see it? Because it's a really good film. We're, we're very proud of it. Thank you to Steve Anderson for taking the time to talk to us about The Last and Lonely Place. We'll have links up to his website where you can buy a copy of that movie and check it out. Always good to see Xander Berkeley in uh, anything, pretty much. So uh, I uh, recommend it for that reason alone. So let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. to let you know I'm not selling anything. His name's Charlie. Charlie? Yeah, Charlie. That's his name, Charlie. Really? Tell me about him. He likes me. He likes me very much. Your boyfriend, Charlie. He's a cop. this trigger nobody's gonna call it murder it's gonna be law enforcement wait charlie don't do it not yet if i tell you where it is what guarantee do i have that you won't drill me anyway I'm worried now. 
We'll be back next week with our final film of Noir November with The Burglar. We'll be joined by author Dwayne Serzinski. And before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Jared Case. Now, Jared, the Eastman House has a very exciting announcement that just came up. And uh, I know you guys are always uh, doing a lot of restoration work over there. The big announcement that came out last month in October was not necessarily about preservation. It's actually about conservation. What we're going to be doing the weekend of May 1 through 3 in 2015 is having a festival of nitrate films. So we're planning on about eight programs, all of nitrate films, which if you may, if you don't know, was the film stock that was originally used for motion picture films from the 1890s up to the 1950s. So the conservation part comes in in terms of keeping the film uh, safe and making sure that you're doing the proper repairs so it doesn't get further damaged when it's going through a projector. And uh, if you keep it cool and dry, we're trying to show that these films can last for actually a very long time. So uh, I don't know how many silent films we'll have, but certainly a lot of films from 30s, 40s, and early 50s are going to be shown on nitrate stock at the George Eastman House at the Dryden Theater, which is one of very few places you can actually watch uh, nitrate film being projected now. Uh, it's flammable material, and so it's very hard to get the National Fire Prevention Agency to sign off on this, but the, the theater was built back in the 50s. It was in intended to handle this sort of thing. So we're very excited to be able to bring uh, nitrate films from around the country, various different archives, maybe other countries, all to one weekend and uh, show these nitrate films that maybe haven't been seen for 50, 60 years. But as long as you keep them safe, they can be shown. So this is the films in the the way that they were intended to be seen. And we're going to have hundreds of people come into Rochester for this. And we're very excited about it. Very cool. Glad to hear it. Well, thanks, Jared, for coming on the show, and thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, you know, we die a bit, a little bit, each time that you leave us, so uh, please don't leave us. Just uh, go over to our Facebook page or our Twitter feed or our website, and you can get all the links over at projection-booth.com, and also you can go over to iTunes and uh, give us a review, maybe uh, I don't know, five stars or so, because, uh, you know, we think we're worth it. Strangers pass and wonder how I live.
beast in me Is caged by frail and fragile bars Restless by day and by night Rants and rages at the stars God help the beast in me beast in me has had to learn to live with pain and how to shelter from the rain and in the twinkling of an eye might have to be restrained God help the beast in me Sometimes it tries to kid me that it's just a teddy bear And even somehow manage to vanish in the air And that is when I must beware of the beast in me That everybody knows They've seen him out dressed In my clothes Patently unclear If it's New York Or New Year God help the beast in me The beast in me Go ahead and get some sleep and we'll have dinner together tonight. We'll have dinner tonight, but not together. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.